Let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word now. We pray that you'll open our minds, soften our hearts, that we can understand your word and put it into practice in our lives. Help us to live for the Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, these are interesting times for Australian Christians. In the last census, the number of people who reported themselves as having no religion increased again. Since 1971, the figure of people who say they have no religion has gone from less than 7% to almost 40%. Nearly half of Australians say they have no religion anymore. Uh, meanwhile, the number of people who call themselves Christians, it, it's dwindled. Since 1971, the number of people calling themselves Christians in Australia has pretty much halved from around 90% to around 45%. And do you know which denomination has fared the worst? Let me read to you from a recent article in The Australian by journalist Bernard Salt. All the main branches of Christianity lost followers across the five years to last year. But this downshift ranged from a mere 4% reduction for Catholic to a whopping 23% reduction for Presbyterian. 23% less Australians call themselves Presbyterians in 2021 than in 2016. In real numbers, that's 120,000 fewer Australians identify as Presbyterian, down by a quarter. At this rate, we won't exist in 15 years. Meanwhile, our culture is becoming more and more antagonistic towards Christians. Back in the dark ages when I used to work, uh, last century, uh, if, you talk to people about, um, if you talk to people about being a Christian, they'd go, oh, that's nice for you. Or, or they'd say, oh, I wish I had your faith, or something like that. Those days are gone. Those days are gone. Now, if you say you're a Christian, people assume that you are... Uh, Arrogant, ignorant, anti-scientific, homophobic child molester. <laughs> uh, now, apparently, if, uh, if you're part of a church like ours, you can't be the CEO of the Victorian Football Club. Because, to quote the Premier of Victoria, your views as a Christian are, and I'm quoting, appalling. You hold to, and I'm quoting the Premier of Victoria, you hold to a kind of intolerance and hatred that's just wrong. Or to quote the Premier of Western Australia, your beliefs as a Christian are, and I quote, completely unacceptable and disgraceful. Getting harder to be a Christian. And it looks like it's going to get harder and harder. So how do we respond? How do we live for Jesus in this increasingly antagonistic culture? Well, today we begin a new series on the book of Daniel. And in chapter 1, God's people are negotiating some similar issues. They're trying to work out how to live as God's people in a culture that is hostile to them. The author starts off the chapter by giving us some historical background. Uh, the events of this book, they don't take place in Israel. Unlike most of the Old Testament, the events of this book, they take place in a country called Babylon. Why do they take place in Babylon? Because the Babylonian Empire has come and defeated and destroyed Israel. They've slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Jews and they've taken the remainder into exile in Babylon to try to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. 
They've plundered Jerusalem. They've plundered God's temple and they've taken his people away. But notice this as we read. Notice who is in control. Notice who made it happen as we look at Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Did you notice who was in control? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar did it, didn't he? He was doing his worst. But it wasn't the powerful Babylonian Empire who won this battle. It was verse 2. Did you see it there? It was. It was the Lord. God had warned Israel time and time again. Prophet after prophet after prophet had said it. If you were here with us two years ago and we went through minor prophet after minor prophet, we heard it over and over again. God said, if you keep disobeying me, there will come a time when I'll have had enough and I will, I will defeat you and I will send you into exile. Well, now he's done it. God, in his sovereign control, has defeated his people and sent them into exile. The author goes on to introduce us to Daniel and his friends. They're Jews. They're from the tribe of Judah. Young men, maybe as young as 12 or 13 years old. If you thought these guys, some of them weren't guys, um, if you thought they were young, probably even younger than them. Men from the royalty of Judah. Now, they have been taken away from their country. They've been brought into exile in Babylon. And now they are trained in Babylonian culture and wisdom with a view to their becoming servants of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. Now, I should say, archaeologists have discovered some of the language and literature of the Babylonians. And uh, this is the literature that Daniel and his friends had to learn, had to imbibe, had to know how to, 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 um, to give advice on. And it's a long way from being godly. Let me quote from one of the commentaries. The accumulated literature included omens, magic incantations, prayers and hymns to Babylonian gods, myths and legends, scientific formulae for skills such as glassmaking, mathematics and astrology. To begin to study Babylonian literature was to enter a completely alien thought world. So can you, can you picture these boys? Their families have been slaughtered. They've been removed from their home in Jerusalem. They've been taken to a foreign kingdom and now they're in the palace of the foreign king being trained for three years in the ways of Babylon. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, one of the first things that happened is these guys are given new names. This is very important. 
It's important because all of their Hebrew names are names that call upon God. So Daniel, the L part means God. Dan means judge. Daniel, God is my judge. Or Hananiah, the, the, the Yah is, is, is Yahweh. That's God. Hanani means uh, gracious. It means God is gracious. Uh, Mishael, the L is God. Mishael means uh, who is like who is like God. Or Azariah, the Yah, the, the Lord. The Lord is my Azari, my helper. Uh, their names are changed in place of these names that call upon the, the Lord of Israel. They're given names that call on the help of Babylonian gods. Gods like Marduk and Bel. He becomes Belteshazzar or Nebo, Abednego. Abed means slave or servant. Abednego means servant of Nego. They're given new names and it's all part of this process to, to reprogram these young Jews. To, to turn them into Babylonians, to assimilate them, to make, make them forget Jerusalem, forget the Lord, to turn them into loyal Babylonian robots. Verse 7. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Bel to Shazar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now, for the most part, these boys do what they're told. That, that they learn the language, they study the literature of the Babylonians, that they accept the training, they, they don't protest their name change. Uh, for the most part, Daniel and his friends, they say yes to the demands of their captors. But there comes a point where they feel they have to say no. Now, the issue happens around food and drink, as it so often does with young teenage boys. Um, well, this is the opposite of what you'd expect. Um, Daniel doesn't want to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, we're not told why he thought that the royal food and wine would defile him. Maybe, uh, maybe it wasn't kosher. Uh, maybe it had been offered to idols. Or maybe it was the whole thing of kind of picking out on the king's food and wine while Jerusalem lies in ruins. Or, may, or maybe it's a way of saying, no, no, I'm going to rely on God and not on the king to provide for me. Whatever the reason, Daniel reckons that eating the royal food, drinking the royal wine, that is a bridge too far. And so he asks for permission to eat only vegetables and water, which of course also will make him different and distinct from the other, from the other Babylonians. Uh, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, the chief official's worried. He doesn't want Daniel and his friends to be weakened or malnourished, but he doesn't actually say no. And so Daniel then goes to the guard who's supervising him, and he proposes a test. Uh, let them eat just vegetables and drink water for 10 days. See what happens. Verse 9. Now, God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The, the king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. These are amazing teenagers, aren't they? Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. <laughs> then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. 
and God helps Daniel and his friends. He provides for them. They fare even better on Brussels sprouts and water than with the royal food and wine. And so that's what they get. Verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the king took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And then the chapter finishes by telling us that God helped Daniel and his friends to succeed in the Babylonian court. They out-Babylons the Babylonians. They were better at Babylonian culture than the Babylonians were. They were better at advising the king than the magicians and the enchanters. And so they get jobs serving the king. Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And so Daniel serves the king of Babylon and goes on to keep serving until the first year of King Cyrus. Why is that significant? Because King Cyrus is not a Babylonian king. King Cyrus is the first of the Medo-Persian kings. So in other words, Daniel remained in the king's court for the whole of the exile of Judah, serving faithfully. Verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay. You can see what's here then in Daniel chapter 1. It's a rollicking tale, isn't it? Um, God has handed the Jews over to their enemy, Babylon. Daniel and his friends deported from Jerusalem to Babylon to be trained up to become servants of King Nebuchadnezzar, given new names, trained in the language of, and literature of Babylon with an aim to, to, um, to assimilate them to make them good Babylonians. And for the most part, they do what they're told. They say yes to their training and their new life. Daniel and his friends, Daniel and his friends, they, they engage with this culture that is totally different to their own. They engage with this culture that is even, even opposed to their own, this culture that worships false gods, this culture that doesn't follow the, the, the Lord and, and obey the God of Israel. They did it. They said yes. They, they didn't hide their heads in the sand and refuse to engage with the culture. And in fact, they ended up being wiser and better at Babylonian culture than the Babylonians were. But in at least one way, and it was more than one because we're going to see a number of ways where they had to say no in the book of Daniel, but in at least one way, Daniel and his friends say no to Babylon. In at least one way, they maintain their distinctive identity. They refuse to be assimilated. They refuse to defile themselves with the royal food and wine, and so they maintain their distinct identity. All right. Okay, before we think about what this passage means for us, we need to think about what it meant for its original readers. Uh, Daniel was written for the Jews who had returned from exile to Jerusalem. But one thing we're going to see over and over again in this book, even though the Jews returned to Jerusalem, they were never really free. Babylon might have gone, 
but they were replaced by the Medo-Persians. And so the Jews were still slaves to the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians were defeated, taken over by the Greeks. The Greeks were defeated, taken over by the Romans. We don't know exactly when Daniel was written, I suspect during the Medo-Persian Empire, but, but we do know that the Jews were basically still in exile. They were back in Israel, but under the control of foreign powers, still in a culture that opposed God and his ways. So why write the book of Daniel to these Jews? What, what, what's the message, do you think, of Daniel chapter 1 to these Jews struggling, suffering under foreign oppression and foreign culture in their land? I think the big idea is this. God is still in control. That, that, that I think, we'll find is the big idea of the whole of Daniel. God is still in control. It might have looked like the Babylonians or the Persians or the, whoever it was were in control, but the deeper reality is God is in control. And so the Jews, what they need to do is put God first. Follow the example of faithful Daniel and his friends. Learn when to say yes and to seek the good of the city, seek the good of their oppressors. Of course, that's, that's Jeremiah's letter, isn't it? Is it Jeremiah 28, 29, somewhere there? Seek the good of the, of the city to which you're going. They need to learn when to say yes but they also need to learn when to bravely say no. And friends, I think, I think the lesson for us as Christians is similar as we think about applying this passage to ourselves. As Christians, we know God is still in control, isn't he? It's not like Australia has suddenly spun out of God's control. God's still in control. And even if SRE stops and Christian schools can't have Christian teachers and, and Christians are never allowed to look after football teams anymore, and God's still in control. He's in control over all, over all circumstances. He was even in control over the death of Jesus. He is certainly in control of our increasingly hostile culture. God's got it in hand. And the day is going to come when Jesus will return and set all things right and we and all people will have to give account to him. And so until then, as we live in this foreign hostile world, we can learn from Daniel and his friends. And we should learn when it comes to our culture to say both yes and no. Now, of course, Jesus is the ultimate example of this, isn't he? Jesus engages with our culture to the extent that he gives up heaven and becomes a man and is tempted in every way just as we are he says yes to us and to our opposing culture but yet even though he's tempted in every way just as we are jesus never sins he knows when to say no that's what we need to learn when to say yes when to say no historically historically christians have gone to two extremes in relating to the world. Uh, the first extreme is called isolationism. Uh, Christians have tried to isolate themselves from the world. It's so scary out there, they all hate us. The, the classic example, I think, is monks in monasteries. You hide away in a monastery and, and you have nothing to do with the world, but you see it in other groups. You see it in, oh, classically, you see it in Amish, the, the, the Mennonites, the closed brethren, those kinds of people. They only relate to people in their own circles. They isolate themselves from the world. But, you know, it can very easily happen in ordinary churches. 
You get involved in a church and after a while you find you're living in a whole new world. You're at church with Christians. It's Christians who become your friends. It's Christians who you invite over. You take the kids to a Christian school. You listen to Christian radio. You burn your um, Led Zeppelin records, but then you buy you know, Christian heavy metal instead. You burn your Stephen King novels, but then you buy Frank Peretti instead, something like that. It can get to the point where you don't even know any non-Christians anymore. It's easy for us to withdraw into a Christian ghetto because it's scary out there. Isolationism, that's one extreme. The second extreme is called assimilation. Christians can become assimilated into this world. It gets to the point where you can't tell any difference between the Christians and the non-Christians. They behave exactly the same way as the people around them. They've got the same dreams, the same goals, the same lifestyle. You would never know that they're foreigners. You'd never know that they're citizens of heaven and not of the North Shore of Sydney because they look exactly identical to the people of the North Shore of Sydney. Isolationism and assimilation. They're the extremes that we can slip into as we try to relate to our world. But friends, Daniel chapter 1 calls on us to avoid both those extremes. We don't want to be isolationists who say no all the time, but we don't want to become assimilated. And so we need to learn sometimes to say no and sometimes to say yes. There are times when we ought to say yes to our culture, when we should be a blessing to our culture, when we should get involved in our world. There should be Christians in politics making a difference. There should be Christians in education. There should be Christians in in literature and media and science and business and law and medicine. There should even be Christians running football clubs. And we ourselves, we should get involved. Get involved in our communities. Get involved in your school community. Get involved in your sporting club. Get, Get involved. Be out there so people know there are such things as Christians. This is one of the reasons why in our church... We try not to overburden people with church stuff. Hopefully you've heard this over and over again in our church. We want you to come to to, to us service regularly. We want you to be part of a Bible study and we want you to find a way to serve. But that's it. We don't want you here every single day becoming so busy with church that you don't have time to engage with the people outside church. So it's worth asking ourselves some questions. Have you got any non-Christian friends left? Is there anyone that you're taking time to develop a relationship with so that you can share the good news about Jesus with them? That's not unloving or or mercenary. That's That's the kindest, most loving thing you could ever do for anybody. Or in your daily work, are you working in a way that contributes to society? Are you bringing some good to this world by the way you work and by the way you relate to people and by the way you talk about Jesus? Are you making this world and people's lives better? There are times when we need to say yes to our world, to get involved, to engage in relationship with non-Christians, to enjoy God's good gifts and to be salt and light. But friends, there are times when we need to say no. And I think for most of us, this is the big issue. I think many of us are better at out-Babylonianing the Babylonians. 
But I think this is much more the issue. There are times when we'll need to stand up and stand out as different. There are times, and I think it's way more often than we do it, there are times when we need to turn off the TV and not watch all that stuff on Netflix and Prime and so on. There are times when we need to walk away from the gossip and the dirty jokes. There are times when we need to say no to the drinking on Friday nights or the gambling on Melbourne Cup Day. We might need to say no to wearing purple or to a rainbow on our manly jersey. Because if anybody would wear a manly jersey anyway, any Christian, but... Uh, um, we might need to insist on being overtly Christian, even if it means Macquarie University disaffiliates us. Oh, here's a big one. We ought to stand out as people who don't keep up with the Joneses. People who don't assume that the expensive house and car and overseas travel should go unquestioned, should go unchallenged, is just the ordinary way that ordinary people live. We should be people who are not fooled by the lies of materialism, who don't believe that owning that next big thing will fix your life. We should be people of generosity and simplicity, different enough to be noticeable. And we ought to stand out as people of integrity, people who tell the truth, who don't break their promises. We ought to be people who stand up and stand out as different because of Jesus. I was talking to a minister friend of mine the other day and he, rang, he, he had to ring one of the leaders at his church uh, at, at his workplace. Uh, the minister called and uh, a colleague of one of the church leaders answered the phone at work and my friend said, may I speak to, let's call him Fred, may I speak to Fred please? The colleague said, who's speaking please? And my minister said, this minister friend of mine said, I'm the minister from his church. But then the colleague said, no way. Fred's not a Christian, is he? I'd have never picked him as one of those God-botherers. How do you act around your non-Christian friends and family? How do you act at work? Do people even know you're a Christian? Do you act any differently, noticeably? Do you ever find yourself having to say no? Or do you just in with the crowd I'm not saying it's easy friends and I suspect it might get harder I think it was very hard in the whole same-sex marriage debate wasn't it suspect the stakes are going to get higher and higher it may mean standing out may mean that you do lose your job or you can't be the head of a football team or that you face criticism or ostracism it's difficult to live this sometimes yes sometimes no sort of life it's a difficult balance and of course we're going to mess it up of course, we're going, to, we're going to run away from the world like isolationists or we're just going to give in like assimilationists. We're going to keep going from one extreme to the other. That's why, of course, we, we look to Jesus to save us by his grace, not to our ability to get this right. But, friends, here's the challenge to us. God's still in control. Jesus is still Lord, isn't he? Not this culture. Not this world. And so, like Daniel and his friends, we need to learn to say both, both yes and no. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you're in control. In control of this culture, in control of every culture, in control of both good and evil that happen in this world. And we thank and praise you 
that you promise not to let anything separate us from your love and you promise that one day you're going to put it all right. So Heavenly Father, help us to live in this world seeking your kingdom, knowing when to say yes and when to say no. Give us strength, give us courage, give us wisdom to do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.